Good morning, Chapel Hill. Uh, man, both services were quite, were quite enthusiastic. I told the first service when I asked that question of college students, I do not get the same degree of enthusiasm in the morning, but I shouldn't be terribly surprised. Um, it's always good to be home with you. Uh, it's uh, always a gift to be here. And um, yes, if you hadn't picked up already, I'm the other tune uh, in the tune family project of world domination. I figured Pops had the West Coast pretty, pretty well hand in hand, and so uh, I've been tackling the East, but it's, it's good to be back uh, nevertheless. So Last summer, we had a very generous benefactor of Montreat College offer the use of his gorgeous cabin way up in the Appalachians for retreat purposes. So uh, Paul decided to use that space for an executive retreat that we retreat, an executive meeting that we call a retreat, uh, that we have every quarter. And uh, because it was, it was kind of back in the boonies, uh, everyone was going to carpool, except that, you know, I lived closer. I live in the Appalachian Holler. I think you've heard my, my neighbor's name is Rabbit. I mean, so like, I, I was already on the way there. So I was going to meet everybody there. And Paul called me the night before to, to lay out some rather exasperatingly meticulous directions on how to get there. And I um, listened very patiently. But I live in the area. I know the area. I have an iPhone. I'll be fine. Huh? So, uh, but nevertheless, I, I, I listened or received his instructions. And in the morning, I got up bright and early. We were going to meet at 8.15 at this, uh, this three-mile gated dirt road driveway. So I had a beautiful morning drive and responsible employee that I am. I got there 10 minutes early and um, biding my time. And then 8.15 rolls around and nobody, don't see anybody. And I figure, yeah, you know, they're caravanning. So that usually takes a little longer. So 8.20, 8.30. Then I start to wonder... Um, because, I mean, you've met Paul now. He's the most dramatic German on the planet, and so he's not usually late. So um, I start to have my suspicions, and I, um, so I had to drive to get a cell signal, so I finally get a good enough signal. I finally call him and discover, to my great chagrin, that I had the right road, but the wrong side of the mountain. Um... You could do that at Appalachia, apparently. It was, a different, it was the other gated dirt driveway on the other side of the mountain that would be impassable. So I had to go 45 minutes around the mountain to get to the right one. And his meeting did not start on time. And I've been hearing about it ever since. Uh, and I think you can probably tell that um, there are different kinds of listening, aren't there? Yeah, there's some amens. Um, if you have ever lived in a house with a spouse or a parent or a child or a sibling or a roommate or another human being, um, you know that there are very different kinds of listening. And in fact, how we do or do not listen to people uh, very much dictates the health and the flow of our day-to-day -day lives. And there's this very interesting thing where how, we, uh, how our human relationships are engaged often reflects how we engage uh, with God. And so listening is a really big deal. And I suspect the stakes are actually a lot higher than we would care to admit. And Jesus has something to say about it in our text for this morning. So at this point in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus is roaming the streets with his squad. And he's proclaiming that the, um, the kingdom of God is here. He's proclaiming the good news, the gospel, the euangelion, all right, uh, of the kingdom of God. And so in our text today, we're going to look at this really key set of teachings where Jesus is going to unpack what the kingdom of God is and who's in it. And so we're going to start, if anybody's following along, uh, screen, go old school. If you whip your Bible out, we're going to be in Luke 8, uh, verse 4. 
While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. And some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. And other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And when he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus, may the words in my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is Jesus' quintessential parable, and all we really know at this point is it has something to do uh, with the kingdom of God. This parable shows up in all in three of the three of the gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And according to Mark, if you actually don't get what's happening with this parable, you're not going to understand any of the rest of them. So uh, this one matters. Jesus loves teaching in parables. It's his favorite mo. He didn't invent it necessarily, well, he did, but it had happened before him. He wasn't the only person to do it. Uh, But Jesus took using parables to a whole other level. Uh, The Gospels record about 60 of them. And so he loves doing this. Uh, And the reason is parables are tricksy, but in a good way. I have a friend who refers to the confounding, when she's talking about the kind of confounding and mysterious ways of the Lord, uh, she calls the Lord Jehovah Sneaky. Uh, and I think Jesus is a little Jehovah sneaky uh, in, in this parable and in all of them. So what, how they work is you get sucked into the story and before you even know what happens, truth smacks you in the face. Or it goes right over your head. And that's the way uh, they're designed to be. My, one of my very favorite commentators is Dr. Jim Edwards and he says it like this. Parables are like stained glass windows in a cathedral. Dull and lifeless from the outside, but brilliant and radiant from within. So Jesus invites you into this this cute little story about a farmer who apparently enjoys wasting as much seed as possible by throwing it in all these ridiculous places. And at the end of the story, he just says that whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. The end. And uh, if you're confused, so were the disciples. (laughs) So when they get a chance to debrief Jesus, they ask for him to fill in the gaps a little bit. And this is what Jesus says. We're at verse 9. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, and though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. And those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble heart, a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop." So as you've, you've probably noticed, parables can be difficult to understand. And in verse 10, Jesus actually explains why that is by quoting the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and what he's saying is that parables are they're self-filtering in, a, in this sort of mysterious, divine kind of way. Because the Beatitudes roster, so the poor, the desperate, the hungry, the grieving, the broken, the needy are drawn in. And the rich and the self-satisfied and the arrogant walk right by. 
And to be honest, I, I think I've spent a lot of time missing the point of this parable. Uh, because what I've usually, when I've read it, what I've done is use the, the soils as a kind of spiritual diagnostic for other people. Right? And pointing out all of what's going on in other people's lives, all of their issues. So, uh, oh, that, that guy, he must be a thorny person, just choked out by worry and by consumerism. Or uh, she's probably the rocky summer camp crowd. You know, once the spiritual high wore off and the going got tough, she bailed. And that is entirely the, missing the point of what Jesus is saying here. Because uh, the point of parables is not about diagnosing the shortcomings of other people. Um, the parables are about the kingdom of God, and it's about me. And dare I say, it's about you. And so by the time we get to the end of the section we're going to read today, we're going to hear the word here nine times. H-E-A-R. Nine times. I think Jesus might be trying to tell us something. And even if you you kind of flip through some of the verses up there, even just in the section we've got here, it shows up five times. This word appears over and over and over again. And so in Jesus' kind of post-game debrief with his disciples, we discover that this parable is not really about different kinds of soil or different kinds of life circumstances. It's about a sower who sows extravagantly, and about a seed of the kingdom of God that will produce fruit a hundredfold. And it's about four different kinds of listeners. So during my, uh, my five years of sojourning in the South, I've learned a lot. And there's much that I have come to appreciate about living in the South, especially civil rights history. It is just absolutely captivating and fascinating. And I firmly believe some of the best examples of Christian discipleship in American history come out of the civil rights movement. And so uh, a couple summers ago, I decided to go on this sort of epic road trip pilgrimage to the Deep South. Because I'd never been to New Orleans or Mississippi or Alabama where so many of these events unfolded. And because I am a profoundly and thoroughly cheap person, uh, I am Scottish Presbyterian, after all. We are we're nothing if not cheap. Uh, so I decided that I was going to camp a couple of those nights to save myself some money. And I mentioned this to some colleagues and friends who now live in Asheville but were natives of the Deep South. And I got a mild eyebrow raise in a, really? In the summer. Might be a little hot. Now, I've come to learn something the hard way. Um, Southerners are fascinating creatures. And they will never come out and tell you that is a terrible, horrible, no, no good, very bad idea. What they will do is they will gently shepherd you with painstaking care and infinite patience until you have this sort of Damascus Road moment where the scales fall from your eyes and you realize all of a sudden with stunning clarity how asinine your idea is. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Bless your heart. And the only problem with that method of doing business is for those of us from the Pacific Northwest with a notable stint in Boston, uh, we are not as attuned to the subtleties of some of those cues. So I uh, disregarded, did not pay attention, and y'all, they were not kidding. It was hot. But nobody here understands how hot, hot really is. Is anybody here from the Deep South, actually? Okay, so, so you, I saw you snicker in there, so you know what I'm talking about. So here's the thing, people. If you live on this western half of North America, you have no concept for this. Because it was 95 degrees 
100% humidity at 3 o'clock in the morning, which defies science. There's no way that can even be real. The sun isn't out, and yet somehow that is possible. It just poaches the life and the hope and the joy out of your soul. And Dante was mistaken. It is not ice that is the deepest circle of hell. It is central Mississippi in July. Can I get an amen from the, yeah, from the southern people in the house? You know. You know. It was another level. It almost broke the delicate Pacific Northwestern flower that I am. Um, and I rude the day because I heard the concerns that my colleagues were tr attempting to share with me, but I did not change my plans based on their intimations. And woe, woe, woe to me. Uh, so here, if you hear nothing else, don't, don't camp in the deep south in the summer. It's a very, very poor choice. Uh, and while Jesus gives four examples of hearing in this parable, he's really giving two categories. Uh, because the first three uh, examples are, the first three soils here, uh, they receive information. And that's it. That's where it stops. And whether for one reason or another, whether birds or rocks or weeds or the devil or suffering or consumerism, uh, whatever the case may be, nothing changes. The plants don't mature and they don't bear fruit. And this should be a pretty sobering thought for a room full of Presbyterian nerds. Bless you, I'm one of you, right? Um, we are a bunch of nerds and because it is not enough for you to hear right doctrine over and over again. It's not enough for you to intake information. That does not make you a follower of Jesus. Absorbing information, even salvific information, is not the same thing as saving faith. But there's another kind of hearer, and, and that's actually a good listener. And this is the seed on good soil. It stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. And the Greek word for, for retain in this verse is used earlier in Luke 4, and it actually uh, it talks about holding on to someone. So in, in Luke chapter 4, the crowd tries to retain, hold on to, grasp to Jesus to keep him from leaving. So that's, the kind, that's the kind of listening that Jesus is talking about. It's the difference of the listener from the hearer, because that when they hear it, they stick with it, they internalize it, and over time, which I think is a really important piece, over time, that person does bear fruit hundredfold. And Jesus goes on to explain a little more of what, how this looks in verse 16, if you're following along. Because no one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. But there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have even what they think they have will be taken away from them. And so Jesus gets mysterious again in this passage, but I do think we can get kind of the gist of what he's saying. Because one day, uh, the glory of God's kingdom is not going to be hidden in tiny little bitty seeds anymore. It will be on full display. You won't be able to miss it. And one day, the, the darkest thoughts of your own hearts and all those nights you spend alone on your laptop will also not be hidden anymore. They will be on full display. And everything will be brought into the light of God's rule on earth. And so Jesus says, therefore, consider carefully how you listen. 
And I think that verse, verse 18, is actually the point, the summary of this whole passage we've been reading. Pay attention to how you listen. Consider carefully how you listen. Um, literally, in the Greek, it's see how you hear, which is kind of a weird mix of metaphors, but it's Jesus, so we're going to go with it. Um, but how you listen will determine your participation in God's kingdom. And so we should ask at this point, okay, well, how do we do that? <laughs> Listening is hard, actually. Um, it is a difficult thing to learn how to do. So how are we supposed to listen to what Jesus is trying to say? And fortunately, uh, Luke helps us out. Uh, we've got a lot of examples, even in this one chapter. The verses that we didn't read before we got to our section, these are the first three verses of chapter 8. Uh, they introduce us to several ladies uh, who have no doubt initiated uh, the great tradition of faithful church ladies who get things done. Amen and amen. There are many of you sitting in the room, the faithful church ladies who get things done. And these are women who G were healed by Jesus, redeemed by Jesus, changed by him, and they left everything to follow him, and they financed his ministry uh, out of their own means. And that's one living example of what it looked like to hear and obey Jesus. And right after that passage, we have another account, right over the passage we just read, here's the next section, an encounter that takes place. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they weren't able to get near him because of the crowd. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And he replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So who are the people in Jesus' family? They're the ones who, literally, if you're going, going Greek, um, they're the ones who are the hearing and doing the word of God. And this has been the definition of biblical faith throughout the entirety of the Bible. This has been the message the whole time, Genesis all the way through. And here's what I mean when I'm talking about that. So over Christmas break, uh, just Christmas break we just had, it got freakishly cold in western North Carolina, negative two. And I, we're cold in the mountains, it's colder than here normally, but we, we don't do negative two. That's, that's not how we roll. We're not like you Midwesterners who would probably go out skipping in meadows when it's negative two. Um, and so, uh, when the, but when the temperature dropped, almost every pipe in the county burst. It was a disaster. So all but two of Montreat's buildings had pipes explode. Dorm rooms flooded. It was a whole thing. The Asheville City water main burst. It was so bad. Yellowstone's Old Faithful everywhere. It was just, it was a disaster. And if I had told you beforehand, before you left for Christmas, hypothetically, um, that this was going to happen, temperatures were going to drop, uh, and your house was going to be flooded, and you had better make sure that you had that, like, heating tape stuff on your pipes and the, all your valuables or little plastic baggies, uh, there are only one of two ways to respond to me giving you that information. So option one is you don't believe me. It never gets that cold in western North Carolina. It never gets that cold in western Washington. Uh, that would be a ridiculous waste of time and effort, and our neighbors are going to think we're crazy people. So we're not going to do that. Option two is you do believe me, so you do everything I suggest. That's just the rational thing to do. And so in this not-so-hypothetical scenario, the response is not separate from the belief it, it wouldn't make sense. People don't think that way. That's why James can say in the book of James that faith without works is dead. Uh, because if you believe me, the only thing that makes sense would be to act based on what I have told you. No one in their right mind is going to say, you know what? She's probably right. 
I'm just going to let my flat screen get ruined anyway. Right? We don't think like that. We don't act like that. And Jesus' point is the same. Because if you actually believe what Jesus is saying about who he is, what he's saying about the world, what he's saying about you, you cannot help but start to orient your life around that information. And I I do think it's worth pointing out and highlighting that um, it is not your actions that save you. That's the baseline, fundamental, most important thing to know about being a Christian. That it is not the stuff you do that saves you. Your actions do not rescue you. They don't. Um, Jesus was able to die on a cross and save the world all by himself. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your help. Um, that his grace is enough for you. It is not what you do that makes God love you more. It's not what you do that allows Jesus to rescue you. That is not how it works. All grace, baby. That's our, that's our thing. And if Jesus really is who he says he is, and if the kingdom of God really is here and is breaking out into the world, then that changes everything. And don't you want to be a part of that, not just in the next life, but in this one? That's the whole point of the good news of God. It starts right now. And you're invited into it right now. So I thought that I would um, close this morning with a story that I discovered recently about what it looks like to hear and do, to listen and obey, that I have found deeply convicting. And it, it's come out of some of the research I've been doing into the civil rights movement. So again, I find it fascinating. It's really wild to live in a space where some of that has unfolded. So Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at Montreat College. We, you can watch it on YouTube. Uh, which, is, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and so in 1959, which is the very forefront of the civil rights movement, uh, a Methodist pastor named James Lawson uh, started to, uh, pr- st- began leading college student workshops and trainings in nonviolence. And the idea behind these trainings was to prepare black and white college students for sit-ins and for other forms of um, nonviolent protests. The first sit-in happened in Greensboro in North Carolina. And so he was, would gather these students in church basements late at night, and uh, they would pra- they would, he would teach nonviolence not only as a tactic, but as a way of life. And what happened was they didn't just read the Sermon on the Mount. They practiced it. So they practiced what it felt like to be spit on and be screamed at, and to be called really horrible, terrible names. And they did that for the same reason that in military training, you shoot live rounds over somebody's head. Because you have to know what it feels like before you're going to go sit at that lunch counter and be spit on and yelled at and called terrible, horrible names. You have to know how you're going to respond. And so they would practice. They would read the Sermon on the Mount, they would listen to it, and they would practice it. And when these students graduated from the workshops and they were sent actively and very dangerously into full participation in the civil rights movement, they received a badge. And the badge said, this is someone we trust to live the Sermon on the Mount out in public. Consider carefully how you listen. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So I'll just leave you this morning with a question, and it's a very simple question. Uh, There's nothing terribly theologically profound in this, but um, how is Jesus inviting you to listen to him this week? How do you need to listen and obey his word? Is he asking you to apologize to somebody, to be generous, uh, to forgive, to come clean, to get help? 
um, to really sit down and, and pay attention to your spouse or your teenager or your sibling. Or maybe he's just inviting you to, to simply rest, to actually take a Sabbath and trust that God can, in fact, run the world without you. Um, and I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to, to help you listen well and respond. It's very hard to do, very simple to understand, very hard to do. Uh, but the kingdom of God starts small. It starts in little bitty seeds and very small acts of obedience. But on good soil, tilled up by the Holy Spirit, those are little seeds that yield a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, may it be so. Um, will you teach us how to listen and help us to obey? We can't do it without you. And will you call up the ways that we can respond to the good news of God, to what Jesus has done? We love you. Amen. All the saints and angels bow before your throne. All the elders cast their crowns before the Lamb of God and sing. You're worthy of it.
Her hair.